0: Welcome to Mainly History, I'm your host, Ian Saxine. On this Thanksgiving-adjacent episode, we're talking about how land companies on both sides of the U.S.-Canadian border tried to create property in Nova Scotia and Maine during the colonial era. How different was this process in Nova Scotia and Maine? What role did different cultures of land use and political organization among Indigenous nations in those locations play in this story? what does it tell us that the British practice of empire in Maine and Nova Scotia worked so differently in those neighboring colonies? If you put a powdered wig on a venture capitalist, does it make him any less crooked? Stay with us and find out. Let's do this. My guest today is Dr. Alexandra Montgomery, the Digital Content Curator and Research Specialist at the Biddy Mason Collaborative. Ella is a colleague of mine and she is a scholar of the British Empire in the the Canadian Maritimes and that general region. Her most recent work has appeared in an edited volume, Reappraisals of British Colonization in Atlantic Canada. And I will let Alla lean into the very specific title of her contribution. Alla, welcome to the program. Yes. The,
1: uh, hi. Yes. And the title of that article is uh, "Barren Icy Rocks or a Nursery of Seamen: Debating Nova Scotia and Ideologies of Empire in the Era of the American Revolution." Um, and I was I was saying to Ian earlier, you can tell that I'm too close to my work because I did not even think about the implications of that title before it went to publication.
0: That's how you know you're in the zone. I know. Yeah. So it's great to have you here. And you are, the, the audience should know, you're also uh, a card-carrying uh, former Haligonian, right? You, it's you're a- true,
1: yeah. I grew up in Halifax, so I you know have, have a fun, deep, and complicated relationship with Nova Scotia, both as a historical and uh, contemporary construct.
0: Excellent, excellent. So what is your research about the colonization in Nova Scotia about?
1: Sure, well, I'm really interested in... Um, I guess what I think of, what I refer to in my work as a weaponized settlement or weaponizing settlement, which is uh, this general idea that was held by a lot of folks in positions of power in colonies, in the UK itself, that the best way to make claims about um, ownership to land, the best way to make claims about sovereignty, was to uh, essentially deposit settlers that were loyal to your cause there. So instead of just uh, relying on paper, proclamations or instead of even relying on armed combat, the best way to make that claim was to create settlements, uh, planned settlements full of people that believed what you were saying about your own claims and that that was the way that you were going to um, secure that land in contested areas such as Nova Scotia and parts of Maine were. So I'm really interested in that process specifically uh, during the 18th century sort of the preponderance of the work is centered in the middle 18th century, but I'm interested in the whole kit and caboodle back to the 17th century and then forward into the beyond.
0: Great. So before we get into the the really cool specifics of your work, uh, if you could outline for, uh, for our listeners, what to your mind are the most important differences between how the British Empire worked in Nova Scotia and Maine, at least to your mind?
1: Sure. I mean, I think that the biggest difference, the most important difference from whence many other differences spring is that Nova Scotia, which I should also make a point to say that um, when I say Nova Scotia, I'm not just talking about the territory that is currently modern Nova Scotia. It's it's a term, is a very flexible term, and the idea of Nova Scotia could be applied to land basically anywhere east of the Penobscot or even the Kennebec, depending on the time period. So it's, it's a potentially very large construct. But I think that the biggest difference between Nova Scotia and, and what becomes Maine and sort of the areas uh, that you study, Ian, is that it was from the jump, really a government project. It was an idea that in its the form that I'm talking about, it was cooked up in London, to a lesser extent cooked up in Boston. It was an idea attempt to really create the perfect or an ideal colony. So the power and the, uh, where the impetus was coming from was always coming from this very high top-down level, um, as opposed to any sort of um, a process where it's something that's created by settlers themselves.
0: That's a good point. And as many Mainers are well aware, Maine was effectively an ex- uh, a colony of Massachusetts mm-hmm. for, uh, for the first couple centuries of its political existence among English speakers. Uh, and it was very much, although not exclusively, colonized by, by people moving up from Massachusetts mm-hmm. with all the, the troubles that entailed, somewhat decentralized. Could you give us a, a brief outline of the history of the British Empire and Nova Scotia in terms of what we're, what we're talking about, uh, uh, when and, and who's involved?
1: Yeah, sure thing. So the reason that my project is really centered on the 18th century, even though I have broader chronological interests, is that Nova Scotia doesn't really exist as a secure territory prior to 1710. Um, Prior to that, the area was, um, I mean, in addition to being functionally the homelands of the Mi'kmaq and other Wabanaki peoples, um, it was territory that was claimed by the French Empire. Um, And in European circles, it was more often referred to as Acadia or Acadie. And in 1710, the British managed to um, conquer it or at least uh, siege down the capital, um, Port Royal, which was renamed Annapolis Royal. And from then on, from 1710 on, the area is understood to be a British territory and the British territory of Nova Scotia. So that's really the beginning of the long-term presence of the British Empire in the region is 1710. Um, from then, however, up through the 17 uh, late 1740s, the British don't really do much. There's a lot of talk about bringing settlers in. There's a lot of talk about um, bringing it more securely into the British Empire. But what ends up happening uh, in practice is that the French settler population, the Acadians, continues to grow. They actually flourish. This period is sometimes referred to as the Akkadian Golden Age, because ironically, the Acadians have their best, most peaceful span under these first few decades under the British Empire. And then it also continues, of course, to be the homeland of the Mi'kmaq people and other Wabanaki folks, particularly the little Stuhuuk in the St. John River Valley. In the late 1740s, a really important thing happens, which is the capture of Louisbourg during the War of the Austrian Succession, also known as King George's War, when a Crew of primarily New Englanders takes over this fortress that was considered to be impregnable. It's in modern-day Cape Breton. It was still a French territory. Uh, very heroically, you know, they they go in, they siege it, they claim it. It's this great victory, and then the British go and give it back to the French
0: in exchange for Madras, a real Madras, colonial swaperoo.
1: a real switcheroo there. And this does a number, a couple of things. Uh, it makes New Englanders very angry, first of all. <laughs> This doesn't go over well and you consider to, you continue to see this brought up repeatedly, especially during the American Revolution. It comes up a lot. But it also brings new focused attention to Nova Scotia. And that's really the point where you start to see these real efforts to settle it with either English speaking or English loyal settlers. The first thing that happens is the foundation of the capital of city of Halifax, my hometown. That happens in 1749. And then there's kind of a a slow attempt at expansion out from there that uh, speeds up around the period of the Seven Years War with first the expulsion of the Acadians. The Acadians all get um, rounded up um, and expelled and then the importation, and I say importation very intentionally because uh, it, it, it's viewed very instrumentally, the importation of as many Protestant bodies as they can find, many of them from New England, many of them from the German states, and that's when you really start to see uh, a boom in these settlement efforts that I'm so interested in. Uh,
0: and there's, yeah, there's uh, these efforts to bring in Protestants, they're not limited to Nova Scotia. There's all kinds of these these companies that, that send agents into the German, mm-hmm. these random German principalities of Protestants telling them, for example, uh, Samuel Waldo, a Maine land investor, was telling all these Germans in the 1740s and 50s that like, oh, Maine is extremely mild and temperate and you should totally just get on this boat and come over to my town. It's totally great. You're going to have a wonderful time. Everything is going to be fine. I'm still going to own the land, but you can totally work your farm and live happily. Um, and, and then they all these... get
1: slaughtered as soon as war breaks out.
0: Oh, yeah. And they get, they show up and there's, you know, like one building in this town and it's December. And, oh. you know, these people, it's, it's it's quite exploitive. And so it's these very, like, it's actually these sort of predatory, almost uh, immigration agents, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're, they're luring these, these workers into the colonies under false pretenses. But again, it's part of this, as you say, right, this plan to, ah, you're Protestant, you'll do, come on over.
1: And we'll stick you in the spot and we don't really care about what you do as long as you stay there and you stay loyal. Yes. Um, And what, what I actually, one of my favorite things that, that that sort of happen in the course of my study that are in my dissertation is there's this moment in the early 1750s where you have all of your guys are in there, you know, Waldo's agents are in there, agents from the uh, province of Massachusetts are in there, and there's all these agents from Nova Scotia, and they're sort of, uh, they get into this gigantic pamphlet war with each other because they're both, they both think that the others are poaching their settlers, So there's all these accusations that, um, you know, the Nova Scotian agents are accused by the Massachusetts agents of intentionally recruiting Catholics, which is a great sin. The Nova Scotia (laughs) agents accuse the Massachusetts agents of literally going in and stealing their people and like dragging them onto different ships. And it just becomes this whole, like it practically breaks down into street fights. It becomes very, very bitter. uh, This competition over what's seen as a limited resource, which are, you know, human beings whose you know, agency and humanity and the fact that they're being sent into something they do not understand at all is never considered.
0: And it's, it's my understanding that well into the American Revolution that Nova Scotia, however you want to define it from the British perspective, is still largely uh, the military has a much, uh, a much greater influence in, the, govern- in the, the running of the colony in terms of Halifax as this naval base and there's relatively few English-speaking colonists in these early mm-hmm. decades.
1: Yeah, I actually wouldn't say that it's so much the military, although there is okay. a massive military presence. Um, it's the Board of Trade specifically. Uh, okay. It's, it's a Board of Trade puppet colony. And that's really where uh, most of the decisions are getting made. Whether or not they get carried out is a different question. But it, it, it's also, I think the point about the military is correct in, ter- in the terms that it's thought about as an inherently military endeavor. So this is what I mean when I, when I use my term weaponized settlement, is that the self- process of settlement itself is understood in military terms. So expanding settlement is seen as kind of akin to an act of war in addition to all of the actual soldiers, the actual instruments of war that are in the colony.
0: What you and I are, are both interested in very much are these deeds and these documents for conveying property ownership of, of British people to this land that uh, is, is overwhelmingly indigenous land. Mm-hmm. And so in Nova Scotia, is there, do you detect, is there a particular pattern or a different categories of, of deeds or, or a process of converting indigenous property into British property?
1: No. And this is one of the things that I find most striking um, when trying to look at both uh, Maine and Nova Scotia together is that in Maine, as you study and as, as, as you have um, discussed in your own work, there are all these overlapping different ideas about deeds and property and conveyance in a more sort of vernacular system. And in Nova Scotia, it's a real concerted effort to make only one type of land conveyance legal. Uh, And all other types of claims to land ownership are just completely disregarded. It's not even a competition. It's not like you're getting dialogue or like argument over what constitutes a proper claim. The Board of Trade is looking at this thing and they're saying the only types of land grants that have any purchase whatsoever are ones that have come directly from the British Crown. If you do not have a land claim that comes directly from the British Crown, we're just going to take your land and do whatever the hell we want with it. So the idea of native title is almost not even an issue in Nova Scotia because they just don't acknowledge it to exist. There are no treaties whatsoever with um, Mi'kmaq or Wolastoq people where land is ceded. There is no real dialogue about individual plots that have been um, deeded to individual settlers from, you know, indigenous communities or individuals, uh, you don't get any of that, um, which is a really striking difference from what you see in Maine.
0: Is this in a almost counterintuitive way, a product of the fact that the the Mi'kmaq had never signed any agreements of what the British would have called it submission uh, or Mm -hmm. peace treaties that the British negotiators could interpret, however, distortedly as a sense that the the Mi'kmaq are British subjects. Whereas Mm -hmm. in in what's now Maine, the Wabanaki people signed a truce in the 1690s with Massachusetts, which later, Massachusetts officials claimed was an offer of submission and that therefore, Mm -hmm. the Wabanaki were British subjects. And so even though they were subject to the crown, however, imperfectly enforced, their property was their own because they were British subjects. And so was it Mi'kmaq's success, relative success that that leads to this disparity, would you think?
1: Um, Well, I think part of it uh, is just that uh, folks who are operating primarily outside of the colonial context. Uh, so folks who are operating just in London have never been to North America, mm. um, don't even have on their mind the idea of indigenous land rights. You know, it's not it's not a live issue to them, so they just ignore it. But the legal justification that they end up using for why they can just, you know, claim indigenous land uh, is a right of conquest claim. The idea, which is, this is there's no bearing for this whatsoever in the records, the idea is that they assume that the Mi'kmaq had ceded their land to the French, which they absolutely did not. And then by conquering the French, the British then claimed all of that territory. So that's that's the kind of legal fiction that they're operating on in Nova Scotia.
0: Interesting. The and that's ir- not
1: consistent. It changes over time, but in this initial period, that's what, that's what they're claiming. Uh,
0: the ironic thing is that the Wabanakis in what becomes Maine, justify their own interpretations of certain treaties, basically based on conquest, where in some of the frontier fighting in the 1690s and the first decade of the 18th century, the Wabanakis destroy most British towns. And so they view this as pushing the border back and nullifying some of the earlier Massachusetts land claim. And so when they when they sign these treat these truces, with Massachusetts, they say, we'll allow you to reoccupy some of these former lands, like the ones that were physically there, but whatever claims we disagreed with have been erased by this success of ours in the war.
1: Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah, And interestingly, was... um, the Mi'kmaq interpret uh, the treaty at the end of Dummer's War, or however we want to refer to that war. That so this
0: is in. a, for the audience, a obscure war in the 1720s, which is a great fascination of specialists like Alla and myself
1: it's the most important war um it's well the the treaty that ends that um the Mi'kmaq are also you know part of that war they're also combatants in that war and they interpret the treaty that ends it in in a very similar way to wabanaki communities in, in what's now maine in that they see that as being a affirmation of their current holdings and an acceptance by them of what the british currently have in their territory which is basically just Annapolis Royal and nothing else. And that if there's going to be expansion, it's gonna require a treaty process. So they interpret it also as a, like, a status quo antebellum, like we'll let you have what you have right now, but at our own sufferance kind of mm-hmm. thing. So they're actually very of the same mind, uh, not incidentally because they're in active communication with uh, Wabanaki folks. What's really different is the governments respectively of Maine and Nova Scotia.
0: Right. Fear not, listeners. There will be plenty more episodes on aspects of Dummer's War and, and the doings of indigenous folks and colonizers in the 18th century.
1: And you're going to love it.
0: Oh, you're going to love it so much. So, so much. So let's talk about some of these deeds you found. Mm-hmm. Both of us are actually, we're, we're very interested in the creation and distribution of property among the British colonizers in our own work. Hence, we get Really excited by, to to normal people, unsexy things like (laughs) deeds and and conveyances. And you found some really fascinating ones. But speaking more broadly, for historians of empire, why do land deeds and these other kind of legal conveyances matter so much? What can they tell us?
1: They can tell us all kinds of things. And I'm very enthusiastic about deeds. In the specific context that we're talking about, because you know, at, at, the, at a smaller level, deeds can actually be really fascinating social history and genealogical documents as well. But in terms of the big picture about empire deeds and, you know, the terms specifically on which land is granted and whose claims are used to justify that land. Really, it gives you a broad sense of what people's assumptions are politically about how things should run, who's in control, whose claims matter the most. So it gives you this very top level perspective on what the um, ideal people are holding in their minds about how things should be run.
0: So you found a particular set of land grants for Nova Scotia that you were were rather enthusiastic about, uh, as was I. What do these, could you describe this particular document set uh, and what they say and and why this is noteworthy?
1: Sure, well, what you're referring to specifically is um, it's a second of two proclamations um, that were issued by the governor of Nova Scotia, which were meant to attract settlers to the colony. And both of those proclamations ended up being geared more or less um, not exclusively, but um, overwhelmingly towards New Englanders. So the same kinds of folks who were uh, settling in Maine that you're interested in. Uh, and what's interesting about this proclamation is that the language that is using for who it wants to give the grants to is uh, "quote masters or mistresses of families. Um, and what's particularly interesting there is the inclusion of mistresses, because generally we think about the process of gaining land Uh, In particular, getting new land is a very overwhelmingly male endeavor. So seeing the sort of gender inclusive language is very, very interesting.
0: Where do you think this gendered language comes from in these deeds you found?
1: Well, it's definitely coming from up top. It's coming um, from somewhere in the Board of Trade. I've been trying to track where this gets started. I believe that this is the language that's used in the instructions to the governor that uh, issued these proclamations, Charles Lawrence. Um, I need to double check that because actually the Board of Trade really hates this proclamation and they're kind of mad at him for doing it, but I don't think it's about that master's and mistresses language. And then this exact same language, and I should should expand to say that it's, um, they're saying that they will grant land to anybody who is the master or mistress of a family, and I think the family is actually the key aspect thing here, um, and then they will get additional land for every man, woman, or child black or white that is a member of that family. So it's describing, it's basically pinning the amount of land you get to the, how big your family is. And this exact same expression ends up becoming the boilerplate language for um, instructions to governors on how to grant land going forward. So you see it um, after the proclamation of, of 1763, which is another hugely important watershed when we were thinking about how property works. And it gets used in, in Canada all the way through the 20th century, this exact same language. So I need to push it back further, because as far as I can tell, this is the first time I've, been, I've seen it, but I, I wanna, I'm trying to figure out where it comes from.
0: Yeah. For further context, for our listeners not necessarily familiar with uh, English property law or whatever, in the 18th century, what role does sex have in English property law that makes these these documents so so noteworthy?
1: Well, I mean, men are assumed to be the the sort of default and only rightful property owners. and Women are only able to hold property under very specific conditions, generally if they're widows, maybe if they're single, but not really. So the fact that this seems to open up a window for a woman to be granted land is very strange.
0: Absolutely. I've never seen deeds like this south of the border, and I should... Mm -hmm. uh, compliment the uh, the main historical society right now for digitizing uh, collections like the Pajewska proprietors papers and Kennebec proprietors papers that have so many of these kinds of records available yes Uh, why do you think that this document set popped up in Nova Scotia is this a Nova Scotia phenomenon or or do you think that we, we might find evidence of this elsewhere too
1: Um, I suspect that it's an imperial phenomenon because I think what makes Maine, Maine and what makes Massachusetts, Massachusetts and what makes these other sort of sets of land grants um, in what we think of as kind of like the classic 13 colonies area different is they're kind of coming out of a much more um, vernacular tradition where it's rooted in British law, but it has had this time to develop in the specific contexts of the colonies. And it's also much more coming out of, you know, settler contexts It's mediated through the settler context. Whereas when you look at these sort of like high imperial instructions and claims, they're coming from a different legal tradition. Still both are still grounded in English common law, but they have different assumptions and they have different sets of experiences. And so as with many things in Nova Scotia, what you see is that in Nova Scotia, those sort of higher up, um, I, I like to think of whenever I'm trying to explain where the impetus for Nova Scotia is coming from. I just picture in my head this like slightly obese man in a powdered wig, kind of (laughs) sitting in a parlor and looking at a map that, you know, he only understands the land as a map. Um, That's kind of the place where these things in Nova Scotia are coming from. And what makes Nova Scotia unique-ish, uniquer, is that they actually get the final say. Um, You get these same kinds of directives going to all of the colonies, but in those colonies, they tend to ignore them or they're mediated through these more vernacular traditions.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really entertaining sometimes to read where some of these imperial officials, they just sort of want to at least be able to pretend to think that they're being listened to. Yes. And their, their <laughs> frequent response to these colonial disputes, for example, over whenever people living um, In new england send over property disputes to the board of trade in england Uh, overwhelmingly the board of trade writes back and says stuff like oh my god we don't care just figure it out yourself and please (laughs) don't do it in a way that makes the king look bad we don't want to be involved just pay your taxes and shut up and leave us alone
1: please keep the quit rent
0: yeah pretty much that's it and of course that's what massachusetts law in terms of running property in maine was in the 18th century was it was flagrantly in violation of the law as carried out in in Nova Scotia, where, oh, the grant has to come from the crown. In Massachusetts, they just maintain plausible deniability. And so what they do is they just don't precisely specify their exact hierarchy of forms of land deeds. And Mm -hmm. they leave it vague specifically so that they have plausible deniability whenever those paunchy men in wigs come around and ask what's going on. They can say, Mm -hmm. oh, well... It's confusing. Just go home. It's fine. It's, it. it's complicated.
1: This. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it's yeah, complicated. Because, You're fine. Uh, the, the Crown and, you know, sort of these bewigged imperial operatives have never liked Indian title. Very consistent about that.
0: Right. Yes, absolutely so. It's these different actors who find Indigenous title to be very confusing or, uh, sorry, very uh, advantageous for them. Yeah. Although rarely for sentimental friends. Yes, of the,
1: it's the almost Indian always for, um, you know, blatantly subtler colonial reasons.
0: Yes. Now, it's my understanding that there were, uh, even though the, the Crown is, is directing the show in Nova Scotia, uh, you do study the, the role of these private investors mm-hmm. uh, in, in bringing people there. Uh, regarding these kinds of, of private actors, who are these people?
1: Yeah, well, where you see a big boom um, in the sort of the the, the groups of companies that are analogous to the companies that have been operating in Maine, um, you know, from the beginning of the 18th century is after the seven years war ends prior to the end of the seven years war, the settlement activity in Nova Scotia was for our
0: audience. When does the seven years war end?
1: Oh, I'm so sorry. 1763.
0: Ah, okay. Excellent.
1: Yes. Fighting ends a little bit earlier. It depends on what, you know, the dates are always fudgy, but the official end is 1763. Um, which ends up being very important because it does actually, it, after that date, things about how land is granted in the empire and how the empire is supposed to be run changes, which becomes very important. Prior to this moment, so um, the settlement of Halifax, uh, these efforts to you know, put little colonies of New Englanders in various places in Nova Scotia had been done um, explicitly at the direction of the Nova Scotia government or the Board of Trade with parliamentary money. So this was a government-sponsored, funded and directed project of settlement, which does make it unique. But after 1763, they're broke. <laughs> all the oh. money is gone. <laughs> uh, so what they do is they still want, you know, all of these good Protestant, quiet Protestant bodies in Nova Scotia, um, but they don't want to pay for it anymore. Uh, so they throw open the market basically to, um, to land companies. So it's the 1760s moment where you start seeing these land companies.
0: Mm. Okay. And so what kinds of people would form these land companies that invested in, in Nova Scotia?
1: It's always weirdos. It's exclusively weirdos.
0: Okay. Cause yeah, my follow-up question is I'm very curious if they were as cartoonishly greedy and corrupt as say Samuel Waldo, of the Muscongus proprietors in Maine uh, or the oh. Kennebec company which notoriously they effectively bribed the sitting governor of Massachusetts in the 1750s they promised to build a courthouse if the if Massachusetts would create a new county in Maine, and they wanted to do this to influence land trials. And they were so cheap that they built this entire courthouse on a slant. You can still see it today. It's the Poundleboro Courthouse. And along with many other just sort of like outlandishly villainous things they do occasionally.
1: Well, I also love that they changed the name of the town to Poundleboro which is uh, the name of, of the governor.
0: Oh, yes. There's no question they, uh, <laughs> they were, there was just complete flattery there. No, no question. And I love where some of the documents that you can find in the Maine Historical Society, also the, uh, the New York Public Library, actually, the Kennebec Company in particular, have no subtlety about what they're doing, where they say, we're going to pay these people money to get them to do what we want, make sure that we hide the records in certain places, because this is kind of illegal, even at a time when standards of corruption were considerably lower than they are today, mm-hmm. where, as you well know, right, uh, in the British Empire, people held offices as property. And even in that world, these companies were still doing corrupt, illegal things by those, those flimsy standards at the time.
1: Which takes a lot of doing.
0: It does, it does.
1: Yeah, I believe it's the Kennebec kind of it um, kind of company that, if we get back to the fracas about you know poaching people's German settlers, yes, they actually try to directly poach settlers that were recruited by the state of Massachusetts or, or colony of Massachusetts for their own private ends.
0: I believe so. There was yeah, another scandal. Yeah, I think that's the Kennebec
1: kind of proprietors.
0: I think so. Well, there was another scandal where Samuel Waldo's company, he bought a majority share and so it became just the Waldo proprietors. Yeah. And- Waldo County is named after this man unfortunately. For
1: some horrible reason. For some
0: horrible reason. And so Samuel Waldo, he lured these unsuspecting Germans and Irish to undeveloped communities down east Maine. And these people suffered so badly that there was a official inquiry in Boston held over this and Waldo had to defend himself for essentially from charges that he was inhumanely preying on these people and duping them into being (laughs) stuck in the snow. The
1: thing thing that actually kills me about that is that Waldo Waldo is like the, he's a a pioneer because he does that. It's shady, it's incredibly shady. There's this inquiry, people suffer massively. And then a few years later, the colonial government is like, that was a great idea, we should do that.
0: Yeah, (laughs) it's true, Uh, it's true. Um, so, right, but in terms of characters,
1: um, I don't think anyone will ever beat Waldo. No. Um, Waldo is truly a character for the ages. Just, there will this, be an
0: episode on Samuel Waldo. Fear not, listeners. Fear not. Oh,
1: my God. I mean, this is a man who dies at the most symbolic possible moment. Like uh, Waldo is incredible. So, the most colorful character that comes up within the context of these companies is this guy named, believe it or not, Alexander McNutt.
0: Nice. Okay. Um,
1: and McNutt. He grew up in um, sort of backcountry or, or rural Appalachian Virginia. He ends up—he's a Scots Irish guy, as you, you might be able to guess by the name. He—he's then in in New Hampshire in the Scots Irish communities there for a while, and he ends up in Nova Scotia, and just like. Becomes obsessed with Nova Scotia. Like, I don't know what happened. Like, he, he had this, like, road to Damascus moment where he was in Cumberland and was just like, oh, my God, this is, you know, the most incredible place on earth. It is now my mission in life. Haven't you
0: had that experience possible. there, too?
1: I mean, who hasn't? But, you know. <laughs> so he becomes completely obsessed with it. And his big thing is that he is absolutely insistent about religious freedom for Presbyterians, specifically. He doesn't really care about anybody else, but he couches it in the languages about um, religious freedom, even when he doesn't need to be. So you got, I have all of these board of like memorials that he writes. He, he's a he's a prolific memorializer. I, I mean, you could publish a book length study that's just transcriptions of his memorials where he's, you know, insisting on religious freedom in Nova Scotia, which has already been guaranteed in his practice. And he he. Lies frequently Um, at one point he claims to have brought more settlers into Nova Scotia than actually lived there at the time. Like if you look at the census numbers and then you look at the number, like he was claiming that he'd brought like, you know, 10,000 people into the colony and there's 8,000 people living there. Hmm. Um, He, he won't shut up basically. He's everywhere. (laughs) He's all the time. He's constantly lying. You know, he is considered by most historians who aren't me to be completely insane.
0: And you think that he's not insane?
1: I don't think he's insane. I think that he is the loudest possible proponent of a certain brand of settler colonialism you could possibly want. He's—he's he's, All of his actions are dictated not by greed, but by his belief in the importance of small holding Protestant farms and religious mm. freedom and dispossessing indigenous people. So at one point he draws, he makes this map. It's a gorgeous map. I don't know who his surveyor was, where he colors in yellow all of the landholders that he thinks are like, being mean to their to to settlers and they're all members of of nova scotia council so he basically makes a map where he just outlines all of the places where people from nova scotia council hold land and then claims that he's treating the settlers like slaves and then he takes this to the board of trade thinking that they're going to side with him for some reason
0: oh now have you been able to find evidence did any of the actual nova scotia residents agree with mcnutt and and they
1: did they loved him
0: Oh, so, okay. And this, That's is my, interesting. this is my
1: big my intervention here. I mean, I would love to oh. actually write a book about McNutt, but I have, yeah. um, even after he gets discredited because, you know, you can only call, you know, the, the leaders of the colony in which you're trying to operate, you know, corrupt slave masters for so long. Well, if the slaves in question are white, but, right, <laughs> but even at, like long after he's been disgraced, I found in the uh, Cornwallis Township book, Cornwallis is a town that's mostly populated by New Englanders, a memorial that they, they're trying to get him to be their agent because and they like what the he Cornwallis,
0: does this is the Cornwallis most of our listeners will be familiar with as the British general who surrenders to George Washington at the Battle of Yorktown in 1781.
1: And this is actually his uh,
0: this uncle? This is his brother? Uncle? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, my error. The Cornwallis family. Okay.
1: Yes. It's from the same family. I'm not sure. I wouldn't, you know, don't p- put any money in Vegas and okay. being uncle nephew, sure. but it is the same family. And this okay. Cornwallis was the governor of Nova Scotia when Halifax was founded and he's a real piece of work. He's also think- heavily involved in the Highland clearances. Um, oh, and so this is different than the piece of work who
0: went to India then?
1: This is, yes, this is a different me- okay. piece of work from the same family.
0: Oh, wow. All right. Cornwallises. Yeah, they suck. Yeah. Okay. So I had no, this is fascinating learning about the, because they're in the 1760s are then this time of kind of smallholder unrest, if you will, then, because yeah. in, in Maine, the, the back country, as it was called, in some points was just on fire where you had all these veterans from the Seven Years' War writing in to their speculators, trying to collect rent and saying like, you did nothing for us. We owe you nothing. And no jury is ever going to find in your favor here get out and Mm -hmm. leave us alone, because we should be communities uh, by and for smallholders.
1: Yeah, and McNutt is exactly that. It's the same rhetoric. He's probably in contact with uh, some of those people. And he is, you know, I, I don't want to give him too much of a pass because he is like a lying liar who lies. But he's really the voice in Nova Scotia of this movement that is a continental movement of smallholders that I think contributes directly to the American Revolution in some ways, about this sort of competition between people who are claiming lordly control over land, where they're thinking about it in terms of tenants and they're thinking about it in terms of proprietors' rights, um, and this vision of a smallholding, ethnically British, horizontal empire. Hmm. And that's actually what my article that just came out recently is about.
0: Oh, excellent. Well, I'm really glad that you brought this up because now I have a follow-up question for you <laughs> in terms of the relationship between property holding as well as ethnicity, right? And so uh, this will be a longer wind-up for the, for the benefit of our listeners of this, this debate that you're more familiar with, right? But certainly during the years of colonization in the, the 17th centuries and 18th century, right, for English people... The English common law, and in particular, their form of property holding, forms one of the set, the main justifications for empire in places like Ireland or the Americas, what have you. Mm-hmm. And so you often read documents where they will explicitly say, our form of property creation, of where you farm like an English person and you build a home and you raise the cows like an English person is the best way. And the Irish are doing it wrong and the Native Americans are doing it wrong. And the reason why we are better than them is because of our property, because of our Mm -hmm. system of property. And they will sometimes say, we're gonna come in and show you people how to farm for real and Mm -hmm. to, to help you, right? And it is the method of property holding in and of itself that forms this sort of justification and chauvinism. And to be clear, it's not that they don't believe that they're better because they're Christian or something, but that property above oftentimes religion and even these emerging ideas of of race or skin color as sort of mattering, the property sometimes trumps that. Scholars disagree, audience, as to the chronology of the, the sort of rise of the importance of what modern people understand as race, uh, versus these older concerns. And the time that you study ALA and the, the 1760s in particular is situated near the, the point when many scholars have suggested there's this real shift and this rise in salience of race mattering as a biological fact about you among the British colonizers. Now, have you found any evidence for the relationship between these emerging ideas of sort of race or difference and property?
1: Yeah, um, and before I get into that, because I do have a do have some thoughts about that. What one thing I'll say about property is um, this becomes a real problem for British colonizers in Nova Scotia because the Acadians, the French settler population, out property manage the British settlers. Like, they do it. They are doing it um, demonstrably better, mm-hmm. um, and they don't know what to do with that because they can't <laughs> accuse them of mismanaging their land because they're actually doing a really bang up job. Um, so ultimately, what they, so which is why they don't dispossess the Acadians sooner than they do, and why when they dispossess the Acadians, it has to be this gigantic militarized ethnic cleansing, essentially, because they can't say, you know, you're not using the land properly. You know, it's our land now, we have to teach you how to farm, because they're, they, they've created this elaborate diking system. They've created land that is incredibly fertile in a place where it has no right to be incredibly fertile. They have massive herds of cattle, and the British can't handle it. Wow. So that's an interesting moment where that yeah. <laughs> kind of comes back to bite them, uh, which is quite great. But in terms of yeah. race, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Race becomes especially important, um, just to jump forward in time a little bit, to the 1780s. Because Nova Scotia, uh, it's there are a few African-American folks that sort of pop up here and there. There are some settlers in the 1760s who do own human property who own enslaved Africans there are the occasional free person of color Halifax is built in part by slaves who are brought up from Boston but it's overwhelmingly you know European and indigenous Mm -hmm. and you don't get really a significant population um black folks until the arrival of the loyalists after the American Revolution and among this group of loyalists, there are a lot of enslaved folks, but there are also a lot of folks that were given their freedom because they sided with the British. It's this phenomenon where the British offered freedom to any enslaved person who went over to their lines, basically. And then after the war, what they did with all these folks who um, had been granted their freedom was send them to Nova Scotia. And the form of land tenure that freed black loyalists get versus white loyalists is very different. So, Uh-oh. yes. And please, someone write in and tell me if I'm wrong here. But from what I've seen, Black loyalists get sort of these very limited right of occupation tenure, which does not translate into full like deeded property that has caused problems down to the present day. There are communities in Nova Scotia, Black communities in Nova Scotia that did, still do not have clear title to their land because of this type of racialized land granting that happened in the 1780s.
0: Interesting. Already there, that looks like evidence of then using different property law to just reinforce ideas of difference. Like to apply it to indigenous people, to put it pretty bluntly, right? In many early documents, you see the model in, say, the the 1600s or early 1700s as, oh, the Mi'kmaq are doing it wrong. They're not owning property like civilized people. That's why we are better and we should fix that. And then by
1: they're not using land.
0: Right. Whereas by, certainly by the, uh, after the American Revolution, and definitely in the 19th century, in the United States, above all, that would be rephrased as the Mi'kmaq are not white. And that's why they're doing it wrong. And that's why Mm -hmm. their property is disordered. And so the sort of order of logic is different. But so what you found apparently is that already in the 1780s, that the colonial, the authorities in Nova Scotia are distributing property to align with their sort of ideas of racial difference.
1: Yeah. And interestingly, that kind of um, sort of right of occupation tenure, where it's like they recognize your right to be there, but it's not necessarily a legal right, is the Mm. same. I need to double check this. I don't want to make too strong a statement about this, but I believe it's practically the same language as these sort of temporary occupation grants that are given to Mi'kmaq people once they start actually acknowledging the fact that they're there during around the same time period. So it's not quite reservation land, that comes later, it's, but it's a rec- recognition that they're allowed to be in certain places, but they won't grant them land.
0: Speaking of differences, are there any major differences that you want to take this chance to emphasize about the difference between the, the Mi'kmaq and Welsdukwiak response to Nova Scotians as opposed to the Penobscots and their neighbors, the other Wabanakis in Maine? that might have had an impact on, uh, on the different patterns of land appropriation north mm-hmm. and south of the border.
1: Well, I mean, the big thing is like the Mi'kmaq were not so much the Wostokwek, but the, the Mi'kmaq were, they didn't really have to deal full-time with the British until relatively late. Like by the time the, the Mi'kmaq were in regular contact and conversation with the British, the Penobscots especially had been doing it for like a hundred years. So they, they they come in relatively later. And they're also coming into contact with different British it's the British Empire, but they have different kinds of assumptions. And this is what I was talking about, where Mi'kmaq had similar assumptions about what the treaty at the end of Dummer's War meant, but who they were dealing with was different. So it matters a lot that Nova Scotia is this much more top-down, less interested in these kinds of debates about where land comes from, where Indian, quote-unquote, Indian title is potentially useful, which the Penobscot are able to exploit in Maine. The Mi'kmaq don't have that option, which changes things quite a bit. So that's where I kind of, I see the difference. I think you also see the Mi'kmaq coming a lot closer to other Wabanaki folks. I mean, there's debate about whether or not the Mi'kmaq are considered to be Wabanaki, but they certainly become much more like Wabanaki or closer to them politically and culturally, not culturally, but politically over this time period as they they are sort of um, forced into this British context. So you start to see more cross-national, cross-tribal meetings, Penobscot, sort of everyone between Kennebec and, and uh, Nova Scotia, you start to see those more in the 1760s. You start to see more evidence of direct collaboration and, and discussion about tactics and timing during wartime between okay. Mi'kmaq communities and the Wabanaki communities. And that's something that's developing over this period. Earlier in their history, they were much more distinct political entities, but they start to draw closer during this period.
0: That's, that's good to emphasize. And there's been a few great works on indigenous maritime history. And so I know there'd be people who would be complaining if we did not, if we didn't mention the fact that, right, the fact that the, the Mi'kmaq were even more dependent on maritime resources for their economy and everything.
1: Oriented people.
0: Right. That, that certainly, I'm sure, influenced their response as well. Mm-hmm. The emphasis being on water rights being even more important north of the border mm-hmm. than south.
1: And they have... um. The option to sort of seasonally and strategically migrate to French mission communities is also much more limited for the Mi'kmaq. Like a oh. lot of sort of people in the greater Wabanaki, Abenaki or orbit are sort of doing this thing where they're using like the St. Francis mission community as a place of supplies and refuge and occasional full-time habitation. The Mi'kmaq don't have access to that.
0: That's a great point.
1: But they also have a larger land base. The Mi'kmaq have a massive land base that is much less intensively colonized, so they do have, you know, more space to work with. Especially if we're talking about the later colonial period, that puts mm-hmm. them in a in a in a stronger position.
0: And what than, is that land base?
1: Uh, so Mi'kmaq uh, territory, of the Mi'kmaq, is generally considered to be everything east of the Saint John River Valley, including um, particularly in from the later 18th century on, uh, Newfoundland. So it's the entire peninsula of Nova Scotia. It's sort of half the eastern half of what's now New Brunswick and part of Quebec. It's what's now the province of PEI um, and up through Cape Breton Island. And I should also mention that if we're thinking about um, Mi'kmaq political organization, the Mi'kmaq are really a confederation. And within that confederation, there are sort of distinct units that I think if history had gone slightly different and ethno-history had gone slightly different, we would be talking about the same way we talk about like the Penobscot, because they're on a similar order of organization that are sort of confined to particular drainages and river valleys. Um, ah. And then they sort of together are collectively the Mi'kmaq, but they're, are, are, they're recognized autonomous nations, essentially.
0: That makes sense. So a, a final question of difference. You sometimes hear that you know, Canada was totally nice to its First Nations people, unlike the United States. Would you care to respond to this oh this framing of, of national difference for our Thanksgiving adjacent episode? <laughs> well, uh, if
1: anyone tells you that, they don't know what they're talking about.
0: <laughs> so, and please. I think that this
1: is well, because one of the cruel, weird things that became clear to me when I was, you know, doing this work and have been doing this work, um, which also involves, you know, paying attention to what's happening in Maine, Indigenous folks. In what becomes the United States, at least initially, have way more options. They have access to way more strategies and ways to work within governments to try to hang on to their land, to maintain independent sovereignty. And the Mi'kmaq don't are not given that option. So actually, it's you know I don't want to like be ranking you know top sure. ten places colonized <laughs> by the British because that's like besides the point and it's deeply yes. insulting to the communities that, that that dealt with this. But in a lot of ways, just in terms of the sheer denial that indigenous people had any right to the land they were on. Uh, Nova Scotia was a much less friendly place through you know, probably the 1830s for, for indigenous folks trying to make claims about their land and claims about their sovereignty.
0: Oh, interesting. Did the British in Canada develop the doctrine that the United States Supreme Court reified in the 1820s, the idea that indigenous people do not have collective property rights and that they have the equivalent legal status to deer or bears, and that there can be treaties with them to sort of extinguish some sort of vague foraging right they have on the land, but that they don't really have property rights.
1: Well, the, uh, the foundation of um, Indigenous sovereignty um, and Indigenous land ownership in Canada is the Proclamation of 1763, interestingly enough. And what this proclamation does I mean, it does a lot of things, but one of the things it does is it, it's, it's interpreted as explicitly recognizing indigenous property rights in, the, in British North America, particularly, I don't want to say exclusively because I, I'm not sure how it's interpreted currently, but at the time, west of the Appalachian Mountains. So indigenous land right was assumed and treaty making was required for land session moving west. However, the position of Indigenous folks sort of east of that line in the older areas that had previously had contact with the British is much foggier and there was much more room to ignore them altogether. There was less of a strong case to have to acknowledge. Them. So, in some ways, moving forward, um, uh, Indigenous sovereignty, it's sort of it isn't, it isn't. It's a very, it's a very, it's a complicated, it's land bound, and it really depends on who's interpreting it. Because, in some ways, sovereignty is less recognized in modern Canada than sovereignty is in the U.S., but in other ways, you know, there's more options. So it's just sort of differently bad.
0: <laughs> Fair. That's a very good point. It's
1: all bad, but it's, it's yes. bad in different directions.
0: Right. And right. And as scholars like us, you know, we tend to believe that it's important to understand how things work, even when they're bad, because there's different ways things are bad. And if uh, certainly my belief is that if you just say it was all bad in all the same ways all the time, uh, that it really it really flattens all of these different strategies for survival and all these different twists and, and turns that, that different people in diverse communities made and tends to be less helpful today. Mm-hmm. Wrapping up, what would you hope that readers on both sides of the border would, would take from your studies of this process of colonization in Nova Scotia?
1: Um, I guess what I would say is that I like studying Nova Scotia because you get a lot how to put this it strips so this is this is going to sound really bad but it strips away the distractions of the established settler colonial states in the 13 colonies and you get a much sort of purer view of what the crown and the board of trade were trying to do which is what makes it really fascinating so i think that you get in some ways a more accurate picture of what the british empire wanted to be by studying nova scotia and what the british empire wanted to be was ordered heavily hierarchical, and a pretty unfriendly place for indigenous people. I think that Nova Scotia comes closest to out and out, uh, out, and out um, expressions of desire for genocide than anywhere else during this time period.
0: Also from a Cornwallis, right?
1: Yes, that's the, that's the Cornwallis that the township is named after.
0: Ah, uh, yes. Is there still the giant statue of Cornwallis?
1: No, they got rid of it, and I'm so happy. Oh, that's
0: great. Well, so yeah, based so on what you said, I have some title ideas for your book project and you could have it, you know, Nova Scotia, like British empire, straight, no chaser, <laughs> or like British empire, uncut, pure.
1: I thought about, I, I plan to write a blog article at some time in the near future called dispossession was always the point because it was like yeah. the, the, the primary role, purpose of settlers in Nova Scotia was to dispossess indigenous people full stop. That's why they were there.
0: That's a good point. And even the Proclamation of 1763, which was arguably, quote unquote, good news, temporarily at least, for indigenous folks west of the Appalachian Mountains and much of what's now the United States in terms of the, the king supposedly is going to, to slow down colonial uh, occupation westward. The Proclamation of 1763 explicitly is part of a plan, which you've talked about, to instead direct Colonists to Florida and Nova Scotia, and yeah. kick out all the people already living there,
1: yeah, I mean it's a like it, you can interpret it if you're for for indigenous polities that are sort of in what we think of as the West, it could be good news, but it's a disaster for indigenous people in the right. east, and the entire point of it is you know you have board of Trade people saying that the reason they don't want people moving west is that if you let them move west, the weather is better, so they won't come to Nova Scotia and essentially dispossess all the indigenous people there, huh. It's grim.
0: <sighs> that is grim. That it's is very grim. grim. Uh, all right, let's try and close on a high note. Last two questions for you. First, what are you up to these days that you are excited about and want to promote?
1: Sure. Well, right now, as you mentioned at the uh, top of the episode, I am working for uh, an NEH funded collaborative grant called The Long Road to Freedom, which uh, looks at the life, the times, and legacy of a woman named Biddy Mason and her uh, long and really fascinating journey from slavery to freedom. It's a transcontinental journey. She's born in Georgia. She wins her freedom in LA in one of the largest freedom suits in American history. Very excited to be working with that project. Uh, It's uh, BiddyMasonCollaborative.com or we're on Twitter at BiddyLA. So that's sort of what I'm up to now in addition to um, sort of chugging forward on what I hope will be a real banger of a book manuscript. So that's me, Uh, that's what I'm up to.
0: Great. And then what is something that somebody else is up to that you are excited about and think that the audience should check out?
1: Well, I think the thing that I'm most excited about right now in the sort of broad field of early American history is uh, there's a new blog called Insurrect, which is trying to look at early American history in a sort of presentist and much more politically informed way is trying to take the radicalism of this moment and put it in conversation with the radicalism of, the, of, of early America. And I, I'm really excited about that project because sometimes our work can be very um, apolitical and anodyne, despite the fact that the, the, the times that we're studying were anything but.
0: That's a great point. And folks are have always been invoking the early American period in, in the service of all kinds of agendas. Mm-hmm. And of late, those agendas have been disproportionately anti-democratic in, in many mm-hmm. cases. Or, and so uh, an insurrect is a, is a great resource that folks to check out to, yeah. uh, to hear what scholars are up to. So thanks for that. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hopefully we will have you back soon to continue these fascinating cross-border discussions of, Always
1: happy to do that. of
0: early Americana. Alan Montgomery, thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much, Ian.
0: That's our show. Join us next time as we discover a time when Christmas was canceled. The Puritans who colonized 17th century New England tried, and for a time, succeeded in keeping Yuletide merriment to a minimum. Stephen Nissenbaum, who is to Christmas historians what Mariah Carey is to Christmas music, Join us as we discuss the reasons why so many Puritans believe that the Feast of the Nativity should be kept under wraps. Join us next time on Mainly History.